This morning is February 12th. It is Sunday morning. And our message this morning is on glory. It's a word we use all of the time. And we often don't know what it means. Yeah, it only works if you say glory! (laughs) And you have to pronounce Lord, L-A-U-R-D. Lord! Glory, Lord! In Hebrew, the word glory means something that is powerful, it's tangible. In English, it's hard to define. When you think of glory, you know, you try to put words to it and it's hard to do. You start to think of glory as something, uh, presence and awe, uh, some kind of excitement, a radiance, a brilliance. You go through all of these words trying to figure out what it is. And in Hebrew, it means a significant weight. When you said the glory of the Lord fills the earth, you remember Isaiah? He saw the Lord's train filling a temple. And he heard the seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. Think, whoa, how is the earth filled with His glory? What does that mean? It means the earth is filled with the significance of God and the tangible feeling of His presence as if it was a weight. The earth is filled with that. The Bible declares it over and over. With that in mind, turn with me to Exodus. Y'all be happy it's not Genesis because we're going to read from here forward. No, I'm kidding. Y'all can turn to Exodus uh, 33. Is that all right with y'all this morning? We'll be in Exodus 33? Okay. We got kind of a solemn thing going on this morning, huh? We'll see if we can break that up as we go. (laughs) It's okay if you talk to me. I get my feelings hurt and run out of here in the middle of the message if y'all don't talk back. (laughs) Shalomo. I'll tell you all what Shlomo means. Shlomo was one of those words my friend and I, we thought we made up on our way to Israel. I've noticed some of the new crowd that's coming in the church has a whole list of words that they've made up that are funny to them. Well, we made up a word, Shlomo. And uh, to us, this was a word like you might say in English, Shmo. You know the slang term Shmo means somebody who's just not quite all that bright? Well, we kept using this one, Shlomo. And we're walking around Israel calling each other Shlomo every time we don't get something right. <laughs> then we met a man named Shlomo <laughs> in Israel. And uh, we found out it's how you say Solomon. <laughs> so we couldn't, have had it, yeah, we couldn't have had it more wrong. <laughs> God forgive us. If he listens to us when we call him Jesus and his name is Yeshua, I figure he, I can get away with the Shlomo here or there. Y'all in Exodus 33? All right. We're going to be in Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you Rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all of the other people on the face of the earth? Boy, how powerful is that? What's supposed to distinguish us from all of the other people on the earth? is that God's presence goes with us. This was so important to Moses. He didn't want to walk forward in his calling. He didn't want to leave the spot he was in if he was not assured that God's presence would go with him. I love that we have the rest of this conversation recorded. You need to hear this. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moshe, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Isn't that a strange thing to say? I'll do what you asked, Moses, or Moshe in Hebrew, because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Now, we're talking about a God that the New Testament declares has numbered the hairs on your head. So how is it significant that He knows your name? How is that significant at all? When you think He knows everybody's name? I mean, He's a big God, right? The word name in Hebrew means all kinds of things. Many times it speaks of authority. Sometimes it speaks of function. But in general, the Hebrew word is Shem, like the man's name, Shem. His name meant name. 
<laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it is. It's spelled the same way, Shem. And what it means is the report about you or your reputation. What God is telling Moses is, Moses, I'm pleased with you. I've been watching you and I am familiar with the report about you and your reputation. Do y'all remember what the report or reputation of Moses was? Most humble man on the planet. What pleases God? What pleases God is when a man says, look, I can't do this without you. I don't know what to do without you. I just need your help. I need your weight and your significance in my life. I need your presence. I need you to illuminate things to me. This pleases God. God said He was pleased with Moses because of His name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Glory is kavod. K-A-V-O-D. There's a lot of ways to do that in Hebrew, but that's a decent way to transliterate it. K-A-V-O-D. Significance or weight. What Moses is saying is, If I have pleased you, show me in everything that we do, everywhere we go, that your presence is with me and that you are significant in the scheme of events. You know, one of the trappings people fall into is they say, yeah, I believe there's a God. He created everything. But then he backed off of it. And he's just kind of let it go its own way. You remember even David prayed one time in the Psalms, what, O Lord, is man that you're mindful of him? We're but dust, a vapor. The glory of the Lord fills the earth. His weight and his significance is in everything and everything that we do. It's our job to find it in every situation and walk in it. It says, Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. You remember what name meant? Hebrew word Shem. What did it mean? Reputation or report. What's he saying? I'm going to show you all the good things about me. I will proclaim my report my reputation, my authority, who I am in your presence. What an awesome thing. We sang a song earlier out of Habakkuk. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. This is when we begin to look at the glory of the Lord in the earth and we go, wow, you are awesome. You care. You care about my daily life. You're moving in the events of the earth. That is an awesome thing. God said, Moses, I'm pleased with you. I know who you are. I know the report about you and I like it. So I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you. I'm going to let you see who I am and I'm going to proclaim my report into your life, my reputation. Isn't that awesome? This is like a born-again experience. When you begin to find out who God is and you're honest with yourself, you begin to find out who you are. Isn't that something? Now, that's a dangerous thing. Jesus, John spoke about Jesus in the first chapter and he said the darkness is shown in the, or the light is shown in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. One translation says has not overcome it. When you begin to stand in the glory of God, His light shines into your life. That means you're going to see some dark areas of yours. The majority of your life will reflect God's presence and that's good. What did Jesus tell you to do? Let your light shine before men. The word for praise, Matthew and I were studying this morning. Praise has to do, one of the translations, is reflection of light. We're supposed to be seeing the glory of God and reflecting it. Not just in song, but in all of our life. When you see these dark areas in your life, there's, there's a tendency to either be convicted or condemned. Corinthians 7 teaches us how you know the difference. How do you know the difference between the devil condemning you and the Holy Spirit convicting you. How do you know the difference? We're told there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So how do you know the difference between conviction and condemnation? Condemnation wants you to go hang yourself. End it now. You'll never measure up. Something's wrong with you. You're one of the people that just can't make it. But conviction, conviction leads you to life. It's Corinthians 7.14 teaches us that. God is about leading us further and further into His significance, into the weightiness of who He is. That's His goal for your life. And He'll cause His good things to pass before you, His reputation to be impressed upon you so that you begin to get it and you get conformed to His image. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. 
And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, that's Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, before I finish that, what an odd thing to say. And you see this all over the Bible. People are scared to look. You know, uh, Samson's parents, scared to look at the angel. And then after the angel left, they go, wow, we've seen God's angel and we lived. You know, they got this confused many times. God didn't say, you can't see him or you'll die. He didn't say that. And all through the Old Testament, you see these stories where people are scared to death because they think they may have seen God and died. He said, you can't look upon my face. Moses is going to be placed in the cleft of a rock here and he's going to see something. So what on earth could the Hebrew imagery here be teaching us? How is it that you are known by God and that you know Him, and yet John says no man's ever seen God, not at any time? How is that? We find out in, first, in John 1.18 that Jesus came to make Him known. Came to make the Father knowable. So what is this? Does God want to show you Himself? Or not? What is this message, the glory in all the earth, if you can't look upon His face? Why would the Word say this? Why does God tell him this? Let's look and see what He does do, and then I'll explain it to you. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory, my weight, my significance passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Is God shy? What is this supposed to tell us? Turn with me to John real quick. I want you to get this. Keep your finger here in Exodus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the New Testament, first chapter. I better turn with me. I occasionally lie when I preach. <laughs> John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Are we talking about seeing Him or knowing Him? You find out in Hebrew, just like in English, to see and to know are related words. If I look at David and I say, David, Man, I've been talking about this. I've been talking about this. Do you see it? Do I mean does he perceive it with his eyes? Or do I mean does he understand it? What God is telling Moses is, I'm going to show you myself, buddy. I'm going to pass by. You're going to see my goodness. I'm going to stamp my reputation upon you. But don't get the idea that you understand all of me. To look upon his face would be to totally comprehend God. Don't you think you can take me all in because it can't be done? God is powerful. He's all over at one time. So that you couldn't begin to comprehend Him by yourself. You'll spend a lifetime studying Him, understanding bits of Him, and just when you think you have Him figured out, He'll break out and do a new thing in your life. This is what makes Him God and you not. He understands. He's bigger than life. So what did He do? He took His one and only packaged the deity in Him so that you would understand God. The one and only has made Him known. Jesus makes God understandable to us. The glory that is all over the earth can be seen in the representative human being. You can see it in Him. And everything that He does, you can see deity in it. This is how God made Himself knowable to us. Moses wanted to see that. And so God let him see a piece of him passing by. But what was Moses' cry? I don't want to go if you don't go with me. I want to see your glory, Lord. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that something you would want? Turn with me to Psalm 19. We're going to stay in the Psalms here for a little while. That way your fingers won't get wearied as we turn. Would it surprise you to know we're going to read at least six Psalms today? Hmm? Some people have been in church their whole life and have never read six Psalms in a single service. They're all short. <laughs> They're all short psalms. In Psalms 19, we see a principle that is true. If you're taking notes this morning, and you don't have to, but those of you that like to learn that this way, 
This is the creation. Glory in the creation. This psalm that we're going to look at. Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And night after night, they display knowledge. Have you ever noticed that people, even people that don't go to church, go spend time in a beautiful scenic sunset in a place? And what do they say? Oh, wow. There's just something about that. It's captivating to people. I remember standing with a lost man who told me, when I'm out on my ranch and it's just me, the animals, and the landscape, I feel closer to God. Now, at the time, I thought, wow, that's a weird New Agey thought. It's not a weird New Agey thought. Not at all. The Bible teaches us that the earth is full of the glory of God. That's His significance and His weight. What those people are feeling is a presence of God that is tangible in the creation. You ever wonder why some guy would go sit on a deer stand week after week? It might be the only place where he's alone with him and God and he begins to feel something. Now the problem is, you don't go through the rest of the Psalms that we're going to read today. You feel it, but you don't know what to do with it. You feel it, but before it begins to affect your life in a powerful way, you back off of it. Because we don't want God's light shining in us and revealing things about us sometimes. You have to understand who He is and what He's about to want Him to transform your life. Before you get that, when you feel His presence, you're excited about that, but you want to leave it there. You flirt with God, but are not married to Him. You understand the difference? Most of the church is dating God. They pick up Jesus on Wednesday night, drop Him back off, pick Him up again Sunday morning, drop Him back off. You know, they're dressed nice. They put on their best clothes, their best behavior. You know, yes, Mr. Stevens, I'll take care of your daughter. No, we'll only watch G-rated movies. We'll only have the nicest of speech. There'll be no bad things involved. And then they drop them back off. Jesus is looking for somebody that goes to bed with Him each night, wakes up with Him each morning, wears your covenant with Him all day long. That's what He's looking for. He's an all-or-nothing kind of God. You're sold out for Him or you're not with Him at all. say, well, not us are with Him all of the time. Sometimes we fall short. That's right. That's what grace is for. But this is the goal. It's to love Him all the days of your life, each hour of the day, every minute of the day. The creation pours forth speech day and night. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. You ever wondered, what about people on the desert islands? There is no language, no speech, no place on earth where this glory of God is not displayed in the creation. Something about staring at the stars in the sky and seeing the vast expanse bigger than yourself speaks to us. Wow, we're small and there's a big God. There's a bigger significance here. There's something breathtaking, something weighty about this universe. And it causes man to want to inquire. Or it's supposed to. This is why Ecclesiastes says He put eternity in the hearts of men. He put in you a desire, a curiosity about this bigger significance that we feel all around us. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like... Now when you see the word like, what does that mean? Those of you that are... Yeah, it's a simile. The word like means it's a simile. God's not a groom. He's, or the son is not a groom. It's like a groom. In other words, what he's telling you is representative of something, right? You're supposed to engage this text. Just like you were reading English literature and you want to find out what is the poet talking about. You're supposed to engage this text and his spirit is in you to show you what it means. In the heavens, He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run His course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. What on earth is that supposed to teach us? When you see the sun come up each day, span the entire earth, shining its light into every corner, he says it's like a champion going out to run a race or it's like a bridegroom coming out of a pavilion. What is that supposed to make you think of? 
This is supposed to make you awe and wonder at God and the day of His coming, His visiting the earth when He will correct everything that is wrong with it. His light shines into every dark place. Every day when the sun comes up, it's a reminder to the whole creation. The day is coming. Have you ever wondered why the world starts in darkness? Why the Jewish day starts in darkness and then the light comes? This is because this is how you enter the world. It's dark for you. And God speaks His light into your life. And then you begin this process of dark and light and the separation that occurs. And one wars with the other. Paul described the warfare in Romans 7 pretty clearly. made me feel better to know that he still struggled with things. There's a warfare going on in your spirit. It's like a champion going out to run his race. What we have to learn to do is let the champion win. Let the bridegroom find his bride. We have to learn to see God's glory in things. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Some of you have ever only ever heard that the law is to bind you up, is to hurt you, is to show you your sin, is to make the world more conscious of sin. Are all of those things true? They are. But it's also true that the law of the Lord revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them is great reward. For who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. The law of the Lord is altogether righteous. See, this is an interesting thing. We start off talking about in creation in general. Their speech poured forth day and night, which speaks of God's glory, right? But one people on the planet were given not just the creation to speak forth the glory of God, but His specific, special revelation. It's in all of creation, but to one people on the planet, He gave His specific, special revelation. Moses said, Lord, You're awesome, but I need to see Your glory. It's all around me, but I need You to show me Your glory. And God did. He impressed upon him His reputation, His report, His deeds, all that is about Him. And it came in the Mosaic Law. It came in the instruction from God about God. And to those with eyes to see, they go, wow, it revives the soul. It gives light to the eyes. It's awesome in all of its ways. Whether or not you stood inside that special revelation or outside of it, the glory of God is there. And Romans 2 teaches us all men are held accountable. But how good is it that you sit here this morning with the Word of God in your hands? You have all that you need to know about His reputation, about who He is, sitting right here before you. Turn to Psalm 24. Let's talk about salvation for a minute. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Boy, that's a Jewish thought, isn't it? So what are you talking about, Eric? The Gnostics came in the first century. We've all been so affected by them that we don't know what to do. How many of you pray before you eat and ask the Lord to bless the food? You can talk to me here this morning. Diana's nodding her head. She's with me. Nick's nodding his head. Judah, do you pray and bless your food before you eat? Nobody does in our house. How sacrilegious, right? How sacrilegious. Wouldn't that be your first thought? We're Christians. Of course we bless our food. Isn't that your first thought? Did you know that the Jews do not do that? They bless it afterwards. You know why? We came from a Greek background. We've learned to bless our food beforehand. Do you know why? 
Because the Gnostics taught everything in this world is inherently sinful. It's inherently bad. It's tainted. And it needs to be blessed by God to be made right. That feels right, doesn't it? The Bible here teaches us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded the seas. He established it upon the waters. God calls the earth good. In six days of creation, He said it was all very good. You don't have to bless your food for it to be good. It's good because it came from God. So why then do you pray? Why did Jesus hold up bread and pray over it? He did it at the Passover. He did it at the multiplication. Why? He was thanking God for it. Thanking God that He provided everything in this earth for us. Christians walk around condemned, beat down and constrained as if something's wrong with enjoying the world and what's around us. We've been confused by churchy language when we say we're in the world and not of it and Jesus came to save the world and the world stands condemned already in this language. We think that that means that this is not ours. The meek are going to inherit the earth. The pure will see God. We're waiting for God's will to be done on earth the same way it is in heaven. The earth is ours. And it speaks of God's glory. When you begin to get the right perspective, instead of looking at somebody who's staring out into the desert and says, wow, this is heavy. This is, I'm standing in awe of this breathtaking sight. Instead of thinking, what a new agey thought, you can think, wow, that's the glory of God being reflected in His creation. It's pouring forth speech that anybody can understand. They can feel it. It's there. That's not new agey. That's not Yoda. <laughs> I tried to explain this to somebody one time. They told me it was Yoda because he said you could feel the living force flowing through the forest. <laughs> no, buddy, I'm not preaching the gospel according to Yoda. The Jewish thought was God is in everything because it's good. Now, have people corrupted that? Sure. Where does the New Age thought come from? It's when you get confused because you look and you go, wow, look at this beautiful craftsmanship. Boy, I can see that God's got beautiful things in the creation that reflect Him. And you start worshiping what was created rather than the Creator. That happens. I've been in conversations all week with somebody that's gotten a little confused about that. But it's not that there's no truth in it. Is God's presence in the creation? Sure. But it's a sin to worship that instead of Him. For He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Verse 3, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God His Savior. I'll talk to you about vindication a little later. Did you know that your salvation includes your vindication? David was somebody who was surrounded by warfare on all sides. And in addition to being longing to be delivered, longing to be saved, redeemed, he longed for the day when his enemies would be put in their place. He said, wow, Lord, break the teeth out of the mouths of the wicked. Mow them down like grass. Psalm 58 actually says, and don't read it this morning, read it some other time, the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. That seems like a far out thought, doesn't it? Say, well, I thought God was love. I thought He just came to save the world. I mean, when we watch baseball games, all we see is John 3.16 in the crowd, right? Nobody ever reads John 3.17, do they? This world stands condemned already. The verdict's already been issued. And if you do not get in the sun, there's nothing ahead of your life except fearful expectation of judgment. Where is that in our preaching? I want to reflect God's glory. I want to reflect who He is. He's not so small, though, that He can be contained in my theology. You know, I read this book. Nick gave it to me. It's pretty good. It says, Doctrine is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. You ever thought about what that means? When we use doctrines to describe God, that's a beautiful servant. These are us putting words to something that is almost indescribable, trying to aid in understanding. But when we make that doctrine our master, it's a bad thing. You know why? Because it assumes that you've just consumed all of God's face. You understand all there is to understand about God and you're giving everybody the cliff notes. 
Read my doctrinal statement I put on the internet. You know, it's elusive. It's elusive on purpose. Do you know why? I don't presume to have comprehended the face of God yet. I'm letting His goodness pass before me, and as I identify it, I'll boldly proclaim it from the mountaintops. But I'm not so arrogant to think I have it all figured out. Because you know what? I'm in process, just like you. There'll be times in my life you'll be horribly disappointed and see, I haven't gotten it all right. And I'm counting on the fact that because my life is reflecting the glory of God, you can overlook that and see the good in it that God sees. Isn't that the mark of a Christian? Not the pretense of perfection. Friends, that's not it at all. It's I am flawed and yet used by God. That ought to give everybody hope. That ought to make you say, glory. (laughs) All right. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? We read that, right? Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, His Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of weight and significance might come in. Who is the King of this weight and significance? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. When you stare out into the creation and you begin to perceive that it's filled with the glory of God, at some point in your life, you begin to speak to yourself and say, man, I need to open up and get that feeling of significance, that feeling of tangible weight in my life. I'm standing in a creation full of the presence of God and yet I feel empty and void. How do I open the gates of my heart? How do I open up the ancient doors that God might fill me with His glory? Because you know that you know that you know you were destined for something more than just existing on this ball of dirt. This is eternity in your hearts. It's eating away at a person. They fill it with all kinds of things. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things made of sticks and stones, Paul said. Today it might be things made of plastic or silicone. (laughs) Turn with me to chapter 26. In the creation, the glory of God is reflected. When we decide to open up the door, the ancient doors of our hearts to let this glory in. We call that salvation. You thought it was just a third day song, Who is this King of Glory, huh? All the good songs that have ever been written anywhere are based on the Word. After you get this salvation, what comes next for a Christian? What is important? Fellowship. Fellowship with God and people who are like God. Psalm 26 teaches you about that. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. Boy, does that sound arrogant? Could you say that? Mm -mm, Some of you shook your head, no. Vindicate me, Lord! I have led a blameless life. You know, it's like the old joke, Jesus says, uh, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Right then, a stone gets lobbed through the air and smacks him. He says, Mom, you're always interfering with my work. Stop that. I'm sorry, that's a Catholic joke. I was from Louisiana. (laughs) Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. How could he say he led a blameless life? Was it because he never sinned? I assure you it's not. This is a man who ordered a, a woman's husband murdered because they had shared each other's bed. Could he say that he had led a blameless life? How? What is it to lead a blameless life? That would make you righteous, wouldn't it? How could this man claim to be righteous? Well, it's verse 2, or the second half of verse 1. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Trusted is the word faith. I have put my trust in Yahweh. I've seen His glory. I've asked that it be put in my heart, and I am trusting in His significance and in His weight. And that makes my life blameless. None of us are blameless. Why do we claim to be righteous, though? Because He's made us righteous. How did the righteousness come to you? By what you've achieved in your life? By the number of times Matthew got it right? No. From the number of times Matthew got it wrong and said, Jesus, You are all I'm putting my trust in. I need Your righteousness. 
Every time you see the word faith in the Bible, a better way to translate it would be trust. If you trust something, you not only believe it, but you act like you believe it. Too often, we've received weak and dead Christianity. It's inoculated us from the real thing. Real Christianity places their whole trust in God. You don't worry about money tomorrow because you trust God today. You don't worry about what will happen to your family if you do the will of God because you trust God. That's faith. Faith is not an acknowledgement that He exists. James said even the demons do that. They tremble at His name. You don't think they think He's real? They tremble at His name. That's not faith. Faith is when you believe it to the point where you live like it. Oh, well then, I'm claiming to get it all right. No. Everything that motivates me has got to be based on my trust in God. You know what? How can Paul say, whatever you eat is clean. It's all right. I'm convinced in and of myself there's nothing wrong with it. But if it causes your brother to eat or to stumble, don't eat it. How could he say that? Then turn around and say, but... If you eat without faith, without this confidence in your heart, you sin. How could he teach that? Either it's sin or it's not sin, right? No, the way you approach it causes it to be sin or not sin. You can approach a situation and make the wrong choice, but do it in faith and God will credit it to you as righteousness. You can approach a situation and do it in doubt, making the right choice, and it be sin. Isn't that interesting? So what determines what a Christian is? How you handle those situations in life. Is it getting it right or wrong? No. It's moving in trust or not moving in trust. When you behold the glory of God, when you understand there's a significance and a weight to Him in everything, it causes you to want to put your trust in Him. He's inherently bigger than you. He's a concept you can't fully wrap your mind around and you say, hey, look, if you'll go with me, Lord, I'll go anywhere. That's the heart that Jesus is looking for in people. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, O Lord. Try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. How many Christians have become comfortable sitting in the assembly of the wicked. It's easy to do. The assembly of the wicked is pretty large. Are you all too comfortable when you're sitting in the assembly of the wicked? They're telling their dirty jokes and you're laughing right along with them? You've been tricked into participating in evil deeds with evildoers and no longer even feel shame about it? Well, I've been there. Done it. Have you ever been in a business situation and... You're just kind of going with the flow, not trying to make waves, and before long you've done things that you wish you hadn't done. You look back and go, how could I do that as a Christian? And it never even occurred to you at the time. Maybe it's time to change your company or change your perspective while you're with the company. We can't ever forget. We can never forget you are a child of God first and everything else is secondary. The calling, everything else in your life is secondary. It defines who you are. His glory placed in you defines who you are. When we begin to go against that feeling, you're in an unhappy place. He'll put you there, though. It forms you. It shapes you. More than anything, he's not interested. Did David turn left or right and get it right? He's interested in, did David trust me and that motivate his decision? That's what God's interested in. Okay. Psalm 26. I abhor the assemblies of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all of your wonderful deeds. Read all that to get to this verse. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Once you've seen and beheld His glory, once you've said, open the ancient doors to my heart, Lord, that Your glory, that the King of glory might dwell there, you love to be where others are doing the same. You can't help it. You're inexplicably drawn to it. When you're outside of the church that you're called to, you feel somehow out of place. And when you're there, you feel somehow like you fit. 
That's God who's done that. When He puts His substance in you, you're drawn to others that have that same substance. You can't help it. And then even among those that are born again all over the planet that have this glory, you feel a camaraderie with them, but there's a special place for you. In His body, it's not just enough to be in the body. It's not. The lie of the devil is you can be in the body and be anywhere in the world. That's a lie, friends. I promise it's a lie. You know why? You have a unique function within the body. This finger does not work right if it is attached to the center of my forehead, does it? That'd look pretty funny, wouldn't it? It'd still be a finger. It's still part of the body. But it's denying its function. It was meant to function. This finger on this hand doesn't work right. It looks similar. Seems to be the same function, but it's not where God uniquely designed it. So it might learn to function there through some strange surgery that is an act of mercy, but it's not what God intended. God has a place for you. He's got a calling for you. You've beheld His glory. You've put it in your heart. Now you love to be in the house where His glory dwells. The place where you know that you know that God's weight and significance is in your life. That's all any of us really want. When you're born again, that's all you want is to know that His presence is with you. To know that His significance is in everything that you do. Not only am I going to church, but I am functioning in the way that God wanted me to function. That's what we want. Let's finish Psalm 26. I love the house where You live, O Lord. The place where Your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners. My life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. But I lead a blameless life. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great assembly, I will praise the Lord. You could even get confused and say, David, buddy, what's wrong with you? You seem arrogant. How can you say your feet are on level ground? How can you say you lead a blameless life? How could you say these things? You think you're better than everybody. No, he just had his trust firmly rooted in what God was doing for him rather than himself. It's not wrong for birds to fly because they can't. Or musicians to sing because they do. It's what they were meant to do. Your life should portray a confidence about God because your trust is in Him. Some will understand it and be drawn to it. Others will be repulsed by it. The stumbling stone was the same way. Some ran to Jesus and were drawn to Him. Others were repulsed by Him. Your life is going to be like that. It'll be like a magnet. The magnet's got two sides. One pushes everything away and one draws everything to it. You're supposed to be an instrument of division. That's strange for us as Christians. We want to be uniters. We want to be consensus builders. We want there to be peace. But at what cost? Jesus didn't come to bring peace into the world. He was the Prince of Peace, and yet the Bible said He came to bring division, to divide mother against daughter and father against son, to kindle fire on the earth. Why? Because His life and our lives show those who dwell in the glory of God and in the presence of God and those who are running from it. Your life should show that. Because you get everything right? No, not at all. Because there's a weight and significance in your life that God is a factor in every decision you make. Not as lip service, not as table dressing afterwards. Well, I did this, and I did it, and I pray that the Lord bless it. Well, friend, you can be sure that He won't do that. <laughs> you have to do it because the Lord has blessed it, not do it in hope that He'll bless it. I noticed when the prayer of Jabez came out, the book, Prayer of Jabez, every business person I've ever known in my life has the prayer of Jabez in their office. Who wouldn't? Lord, we pray that You expand our tents. Lord, that You bless us on every side. Well, of course we want that. But there's only one way to get it. It's a prerequisite. <laughs> Some preach a gospel of greed. I'd rather preach the gospel of God, which says empty yourself, pour everything out, and He'll fill you. This gospel of greed says empty it only to be filled. <laughs> you know, send me a hundred dollars. I'll send you seven hundred well, why don't those ministries just send everybody all their money? God will pour it into them, right? 
Isn't that interesting? Do not take away my soul and my feet. Stand on level ground. Friends, you're on level ground when everything you do is motivated by a trust in the glory of God. In the creation, it witnesses the glory of God. Salvation happens when you begin to long for that glory into the doors of your heart. That will immediately make you comfortable in the house where His glory dwells. That's what you'll long for. You'll start to be disappointed that there's not a church service on Tuesday. There's not a church service on Thursday. You'll get out the phone book and start looking for those things. Or you'll find a church like us that pretty well meets every day. (laughs) We just do it in different people's houses at different times. There was a Super Bowl here recently. I don't even remember who won. We got together because I wanted to be in the house where the glory dwelt. Where does the glory dwell? It dwells in the people. So wherever you are united with people that love the Lord, that glory is there. I just wanted to be around you all. I could have cared less about the football game. We did Psalm 19. We did Psalm 24. We did Psalm 26. Let's go to Psalm 85. Is that okay with y'all? Y'all don't mind reading the Word, huh? <laughs> y'all got these memorized, don't you? This is the same. That's right. I try to remind everybody every Sunday, Cassidy, just help me. I don't preach very often from the New Testament because I expect you to know it. <laughs> you didn't grow up with the Old Testament. I know that. So I'm going to preach continually out of the Old Testament. It's your job to commit the New Testament to memory. Okay, read it until you're familiar with it. And then you know what? You will see it everywhere as you read the Old Testament. Everywhere. There, you won't be able to turn two chapters of Ezekiel without going, wow, Jesus was talking about that. Paul was mentioning that. And it's not everywhere they put a cross-reference. Sometimes they miss them. Okay? Y'all in Psalm 85? Seeing the creation glory is an important part of coming to salvation, which is the next step. After salvation, you have to learn to dwell in fellowship. After fellowship, you really have to find out how repentance works. Otherwise, you can't stay in fellowship. Psalm 85, verse 1. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior. What's he saying? You did it once, Lord, and now I've screwed it up. Do it again. Please, I need you. Restore us again. Sometimes we act like as Christians, well, I was saved. (laughs) You're being saved every day, I promise. It's not that you needed grace. You needed mercy. It's that you need grace. You need mercy. God's not the God of the second chance. He's the God of the 10,000th chance. And you hope you don't get to the end of those this week. (laughs) Okay? Set aside all your wrath and turn from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Isn't it a scary thing to think that something you do could make the Lord angry? I can assure you, you can. Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to His people, His saints. If you were ever taught, and I don't think many of you in here were, that saints were something that is named by a church, saints are the church. If you're not a saint... You're not in the church. Saints are His people. But let them not return to folly. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. We're going to keep reading that, but I want to tell you this. Once you've seen the creation glory, once you've said, Lord, I need that in my heart, and you've opened those doors, once you've learned to dwell with the righteous, from time to time, you will realize that the glory went that way and you went this way. And you have got to be willing to say, oh Lord, look, I need you to revive me again. I need to do whatever it takes to get right, to get back into the significant life you've called me to, the life of feeling your presence. That's the mark of a Christian. Not that you always got it right. 
It's that you do whatever it takes to trust the Lord and move into a position of His favor. This is why Israel spent 40 years in a desert waking up every day looking to see when the cloud moved. Had watchmen every night looking to see when the pillar of the fire moved. Because God's presence, His glory in your life will cause you to do something this day and something different tomorrow. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. But what makes Him God and us not is that we do what He shows us to do. And that you freely admit you don't, always, you don't have a monopoly on it. How many Christians look at other Christians and go, this is simply what the Lord says? No, that's what you believe the Lord says to you. <laughs> Each Christian has a responsibility in their own life to determine what the will of God is and then to act upon it and then to test that. Did I get it right? Did I not get it right? Constantly evaluating what do I need to do to dwell in your presence and in your glory. It might be different for David than Judah. might be. This is why Romans 14.4 says, Hey, who are you, O man, to judge another man's servant? To his own master does he stand or fall. How often do Christians spend their time judging everyone else's actions? All of the time, avoiding taking a sober look at their own. We do it all of the time. Baptists love to pick on the Catholics. Methodists love to pick on the Baptists. Everybody picks on the Pentecostal and Charismatics. You know, always pointing at what everybody else is doing wrong without examining our own lives. I'm so guilty of this that I can't even hardly stand up and tell you about it. The Word of God is supposed to be a mirror. When you look into a mirror, you're supposed to see yourself. Women believe in this so strongly you get lighted mirrors. And then they magnify every little... Y'all don't have imperfections, but every unique marking upon your face so that you see it great big and clear. We need to learn to put down the magnifying glass for everybody else's life and pick up the mirror that shines into our life. That's what the glory of God will do to you. Do you think while Moses was on the mountain and God was showing him His goodness and His glory and stamping upon him His reputation, do you think Moses was thinking about what Joshua was doing? Wondering why Joshua was late for work that day? Wondering why Joshua failed to pick up the falafels? You know? I don't think so. I bet he was profoundly humbled at some of the things he didn't have right in his life and supremely in touch with the grace that God was showing him. Do you think so? When you come into contact with the presence of God, that's what it leaves you with. If it leaves you with a feeling of superiority and arrogance, you might not have come into contact with the presence of God. Maybe you went to a pep rally in the name of Jesus but for your flesh. That's what a lot of church services are. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness. This is so important. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I want you to get this. Verse 11 is one that if you don't write anything else I say today down, you ought to write this one down. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. You want to know how to repent? How do I get this right? I felt the Lord's glory go left when I went right. How? What do I do? Oh my God, I'm, I'm damaged goods. I'm thrown away forever. What do I do? When faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down from heaven. What God is looking for you and Him is a renewed trust. Soon as your faithfulness begins to rise to Him, Lord, I'm sorry. I did it wrong, but I want to get it right. When that spring of faith begins to stretch forth to Him, His righteousness will shine down on you. That's the relationship. It's not righteousness down on you and then you reward God with your trust. It is you show Him trust and He will show you what is righteous. When faithfulness springs up, righteousness comes down. Isn't it great how the Hebrews did this? Isn't that easy to remember? Now next time you're sitting at an intersection going, my God, I've made a mess of my life. What do I do? Do I need to go back? Do I need to go left? Do I need to go right? Do I need to go forward? You need to let faith spring up that righteousness might spring down. That's all you need to do. He will make His will clear to you. He's God. He's able. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. 
Righteousness goes before Him and prepares the way for His steps. This psalm starts off saying, will you be angry with us forever, Lord? I mean, will you never revive us again? And then somewhere in the middle of this song, because that's what this is, songs with stringed instruments, right, Matthew? That's what a psalm is, is a song with a stringed instrument. Somewhere in the middle of saying, Lord, will you never revive us? Will you never get this right? Somewhere in the middle of that, he goes, wow, when faith springs up, righteousness looks down. And then, listen, look at the next words. He starts getting excited. The Lord will indeed give what is good to our land, and it will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before us and prepares a way for our footsteps. You can feel faith having risen up in Him during the singing of the song. How many times has praise pulled you out of the pit? I can tell you one time I was sitting in here in my living room, broken, hurt, feeling deserted. Jason Upton's song, Let Faith Arise. Faith began to spring up in my heart and before long, righteousness was pouring down on me from heaven. God doesn't throw us away, friends, even if everybody else does. He's just waiting for the spring of righteousness to get a little bit flexed. There's all this kinetic kinetic potential energy bound up in it. It's inside of you. Jesus put it there. And it's just waiting to be loosed. It will propel you into the presence of God. All you have to do is show some trust. Turn with me to Psalm 96. We've been through the creation's witness of glory. We've been through the salvation experience of having that glory shed abroad in our hearts. We've learned now how to repent. We let God's faithfulness, our trust in Him, spring up that His righteousness might be poured down. Now we learn about the witness that we are supposed to have. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. It's pretty hard to sing a new song, a happy song, and be ticked off at the world, isn't it? Isn't it? Mad drunks don't sing. It's happy drunks that do. You ever notice that? The, the guy who's drank too much and is ticked off at the world, he's not walking around singing. But the guy that's had too much to drink and is suddenly at peace with the world, happy about everything, he's singing songs. We're supposed to be that free from inhibitions in that same way. Others are drunk with alcohol that we're drunk in the Spirit. Happy just singing good things about Jesus with our lives. It is hard to stay free from burden in that way. You can be overcome by the thought that all your neighbors are going to hell. You can be overcome by the thought that others have hurt you. Hurt feelings are of the devil. He has pulled more people into his pit and his trap with hurt feelings. It is so hard. You say, but Lord, they hurt me. He said, yeah, so. You know, showed you mercy, didn't I? Showed them some. He said, but they were wrong. Yeah, how many times were you wrong? You know, that kills the faith of Christians. When you begin to build a wall between you and your neighbor because of hurt feelings, you have built a ceiling between you and God. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Y'all, you want to recite it with me? Churches like to recite the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, earth as it is in heaven. What's the next words? Forgive us our trespasses as... As we forgive those who trespass against us. What does that mean, that as? In the same way. If you're hanging on to the way that Brad hurt you, you know what? God's not going to let go of the way that you hurt him. You're forgiven in the same manner that you forgive other people. You know what that will make you do? Have memory loss. Have memory loss right away. You will forget immediately all the ways that somebody hurt you. Because the truth is we're bumbling through life half the time wounding everybody we come into contact with. But that's not our goal. You know, I had the misfortune of being on a football field with Matthew Piro. And I was not, I was raised in a football coach's house, okay? But I didn't do that stuff until about the seventh grade. So I skipped Lots of years of training that those guys got. They used to call me a bull in a china closet. That's also how I am in the kingdom often. I forget people are delicate around me. We're all delicate in some ways. And I'm just meandering through life putting the horns to whatever gets in my way. That can be good for God as long as I'm surrounded by the enemy. It's when you're surrounded by the brothers and sisters in Christ that it's bad. 
And yet God uses it. This is iron sharpening iron. Why doesn't that sound so sweet? Iron sharpening iron. But visualize it for a minute. Two swords clashing and pieces flying off. One in that direction, one in that direction until it's polished and it's sharper. Christianity is a contact sport. It is. And sometimes you get clipped from behind. And it's usually from a brother or a sister. And if you spend all of your time waving the penalty flag, making sure everybody in the audience understands that they hurt you, you're not playing in the game. How silly is that? You're calling for a replay and a coach's decision. And then you want a trophy that you got a clip. There was this pulling guard when I was in high school named Michael Granada. Poor guy. He was about 50 pounds lighter than I was. His job was to pull from the left side of the line, go down behind Matthew, who is the center, and up over the shoulder of the right tackle. And I was supposed to receive a football and run through the hole that he created. The problem is, is I ran over him on almost every play. He knew that when he pulled and he went through that hole, I was going to put my helmet in the center of his back and run him over from behind while I was going where I was going. But it was his job. I had a function. He had a function. I didn't choose him. The coach did. (laughs) I didn't call the plays. Now, he could be really bitter about that or he could decide it was his function in the kingdom and move on and hope for a different play to be called next time. Sometimes we spend all of our time worried about what other people's function is and how it relates to us. Let's just spend some time getting it right. There's a witness we're supposed to have. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. We're supposed to be displaying the weight and significance of God in His deeds among the nations. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The Bible never makes the claim that there's one God. That's a misnomer. There's only one that's to be treated like God. There are lots of spiritual powers in this world. And people that are out there worshiping goats and cows and rats and, I mean, go to India, spend some time there. Twelve national gods. All of them in some way relating to the animal kingdom. Said, well, those aren't gods. Well, they kind of are. They're deities. They're just not to be treated in the same league with the deity you serve, who is the creator who made all things. Everything else is in rebellion to him. Everything else. But he's bringing it under one head into submission under the man Jesus. And you've chosen to get right before you're made to get right. Isn't that nice? There's a witness. And it's supposed to be about the glory of God. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of nations. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. In other words, ascribe to Him the weight and significance that is due... His salvation or His reputation. His reputation deserves something. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all of the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. The glory of God will compel you to witness about Him among the nations. Part of that witness is there's a judgment coming. It's coming. That makes some happy and others fearful. The Bible teaches us in Romans 8, and we're wrapping up here, that the world has been subjected to frustration and that it longs to be liberated. The Bible teaches that those of us that have been liberated from this bondage to decay are like calves leaping from a stall, excited, exuberant. Your life should display that if the glory of God's in it. It's supposed to display that. Psalm 149 teaches about our destiny. And I lied, we're not going to get to read it. It teaches about our destiny to rule the nations and have the glory of God within us.
That's what you're called to. Isn't it time that we act like it? This is where the New Testament writer says, I pray that you live a life worthy of your calling. Find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. Different in every situation. John 1.14 teaches that we beheld the glory of God because He tabernacled among us. The glory of God put on flesh that you would understand Him. Now as Christians, we walk as He walked. Zechariah 2.5 tells us that in the end times, Jerusalem, Jerusalem means the city of His peace. Jerusalem will be a city that has no walls and that God will be a wall of fire around it and His glory will be within it. Friends, His city is His people. That's why it has no walls. That's why it's innumerable. And He is a wall of fire around it and His glory is within it. The more dangerous this world gets, the more you have to know that God's weight and significance is dwelling within you and that He's a wall of fire around you in every situation. This encourages your trust in Him. It shows that you are people of faith. As Moses said, it distinguishes you from the other peoples, from the other nations. You know, all the, all the nations watched Israel sojourn in the desert for 40 years so that when they got to Jericho, everybody was scared of Israel. You know why? Why would they be scared? I mean, they've been wandering around in the desert like idiots. They were horrified because they had seen the cloud go before them. Nobody needs to fear Eric because Eric is anything special. But those that oppose the purpose of a Christian in their life need to fear God because His presence is with us. His glory is within us and He is a wall of fire around us. Y'all go ahead and uh, stand up, but I want to read you a couple more verses, or at least quote them to you. Isaiah 40, verse 5, says, The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it. God's desire is that everybody understand His weight and significance. How good it is to find it in the day of salvation, though. Peter said, he quoted an Old Testament prophet, and he said, that the day of the Lord would be glorious. Great and glorious. The Old Testament prophet said it would be dreadful. The difference in perspective is whether or not you found His glory before He showed up. How bad it is to find out the guy's the boss of all of the world and not have submitted to Him on the day He comes. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with another. God will not tolerate you giving significance or weight to anything else in life other than Him. He's jealous. You cannot worship. You cannot revere. You cannot truly love anything else but Him in your life. And then the love that He gives you for other things, you're allowed to keep. But this is how you lose your life in Him and He gives you life. When you find competing interest with God in your life, you better cut them off so that He doesn't cut you off. That's how that works. Isaiah 60 tells us that the glory of the Lord says rise and shine that the glory of the Lord may dwell in you. That's what we want. Jesus said a city on a hilltop can't be hidden. In the same way, let your good deeds shine before men. What I'm praying for each of you today, what I'm praying for myself, is that having identified the glory of the Lord, having received the glory of the Lord, having dwelt with others that have the glory of the Lord, having learned to repent to keep the glory of the Lord, that we put it into good use by reflecting it everywhere we go. Teach other people by your life how heavy and how significant God is.